Hello, and welcome to Voices of Recovery, a podcast about life after addiction from Serenity Lane. Our guest in the studio today is Will T. He talked to us about how, after a life of independence and success, finding acceptance and admitting defeat would prove to be the ultimate act of power. Great childhood. Um, Parents were married, never divorced. No alcoholism, no abuse. Um, the only thing from my childhood that shaped me a little bit was uh, we moved quite often, uh, not in the military, but in the newspaper industry, and changed coasts about four times, five times, and changed homes because my dad liked real estate about every 18 months, it seemed, even inside the same town. Um, formative years were in New Hampshire. State motto is live free or die. The drinking age was 18. Uh, When I left there in 92 for Portland, it was uh, still okay to have an open container of alcohol in the car and drive. Um, But that didn't really affect me too much. I mean, weekend warrior, the usual high school kind of stuff in the late 70s. Smoked a lot of pot. Um, Seemed to help me with higher math. I don't know why. but uh, it wasn't anything like pot today. And uh, that was pretty short-lived for me. I didn't, didn't really enjoy it that much after time. Uh, married, married way too young, 19, uh, two children. Uh, that ended in divorce in, the, oh, probably my mid-20s. So as a single dad, um, again, pretty focused on family. And, um, and uh, you know... I would drink other people's alcohol. Um, the, the, my outlaws were uh, uh, Roman Catholic, so we celebrated every holiday with, you know, a party. Changed, changed careers, but always around manufacturing and uh, started getting into the software application end of manufacturing, uh, which meant my clients were um, expected to be entertained. Uh, I wasn't in sales, but I had to. I went, went around with the sales team and did demonstrations, and so there was always, you know, drinking in the airport, drinking on the plane, drinking with the client afterwards. Uh, when I got into installations of uh, software installations as a project manager, it was kind of expected that on Thursday nights you'd have a happy hour for the client. So, uh, so my drinking definitely increased. Uh, still not. Um, a daytime drinker or a morning drinker or anything of that. Um, but as it progressed, I found myself, you know, oh, it's hard to wake up this morning or, you know, it's Sunday and football's on on the East Coast, so let's go have a couple of drinks and watch it on satellite at 10 a.m. Uh, kind of deal. So just kind of kept progressing on a slow, if you could think of a graph, it would just be a slow uphill, kind of a slow uphill, drinking more, drinking more. As Will notes, there was more drinking at this time, but no consequences. Things were progressing along normal lines of career and family life until a terrible event took place. In October of 2012, Will's wife stumbled in the dark when exiting their vehicle in the driveway. She fell and hit her head hard. In the weeks that followed, her behavior changed slightly. Then, two weeks later, returning from a business trip, 
Will found her unconscious on the floor. Called 911. I'm, I'm a crisis, I'm kind of crisis management in my career, so I went into crisis management mode. Um, they thought it was a stroke. It wasn't. Had to go to a different hospital. It was all in ambulances. So by the time we got to the hospital, the trauma care in Portland, um, um, my kids have now all formed up and 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 we're all in the ER. And I come out of the ambulance, and the doctor's there in a dress shirt and tie. And I said, "Where's your scrubs?" He says, "Well, we're not going to operate." I said, "Oh, cool. You know, they've had all the electronic stuff downloaded." I said, "Oh, great." I said, so what's next? He goes, oh, she'll, she'll die in about 20 minutes. And um, in front of my children, she says that. So, you know, my daughter falls down on the, lays down on the floor and prays and cries. And I said, no, you know, give me the document. Give me the CYA, give me the cover your ass document. I'll, I'll sign it, it's okay. He goes, well, you don't understand. She's gonna be a vegetable. I said, no, you don't understand. You don't know her. And, um, and uh, you know, she pulled through a surgery. Um, she was 17 days in ICU, um, about three weeks in a step-down unit, six months in skilled nursing, a couple of weeks in uh, Rio, which is Rehabilitation Institute of Oregon. And now I'm about, you know, my work was fantastic um, and it supported me through that, but it was, it was obvious at that time um, that I wasn't able to work. And after six months, I wasn't able to work and, and deal with what I needed to at home. So uh, I was kind of ready for early retirement. That's one of the goals we had had. And so I retired. Will's wife had survived, but her brain injury would leave her with acute and long-term physical impairments. With Will serving as caretaker, taking some time away from work made sense. In fact, early retirement had actually been a goal of Will's, something he'd been working towards, so the timing seemed fortuitous. He was not prepared, however, for how it would feel. The time and isolation that came with not working proved highly destructive for him. So now I'm left with a lot of time on my hand, a lot of time at home, a lot of isolation, um, and I, my drinking really escalated. Now, now it's gone from a slow uphill to a spike. Um, now I'm drinking in the morning, uh, now a bottle of wine, which is four glasses at lunch is no big deal, um, sitting by myself in a restaurant. Uh, and I didn't even think anything of it. So now the consequences start. Um, DUI and bend. I've, I have no idea why I, I was in flip-flops and I was also taking benzos, um, which on, on the care of my psychiatrist, and if you talk to a, a real MD, they'll tell you that benzo is a uh, basically alcohol and a pill. And so mixing the two is extremely, extremely dangerous. I didn't know any of this. I just you know popped them. I felt good, had a few drinks. So I'm, I'm walking, I'm take, taking the walk of shame for the officer, for the OSP, and uh, for some reason I said, oh, these sandals make me unsteady. So I took my flip-flops off and walked barefoot on the hot, crooked pavement and thinking that would make it better. So the alcoholic mind um, uh, makes us believe crazy things. So, so that was my first uh, real consequence. Uh, went on from that to um, started crashing cars, um, including some pretty expensive ones. Will's consequences ranged from smashed cars to strained relationships. I certainly drove drunk. I certainly was a jerk. I'd tell the same story three times in 20 minutes, and people would say, geez, well, 
are you going to tell that story again? I'm, well, yeah, you didn't hear the good part. So um, it was obnoxious. Um, it, it was just, uh, it wasn't pleasant. And my friends started falling away. Uh, so I found myself more isolated, drank more, um, started going to detoxes, probably detoxed three or four times. I found that it was, um, it was easier to just go into the ER room at three in the morning than, uh, then go through a doctor's appointment or even call somebody. Just go straight to ER and they'll take care of you. Uh, passed out in a bar. Now, you've got to remember, my wife is with me. She's in a wheelchair. Her right side is compromised. And I'm drinking in an upstairs bar in Hawaii, and I just fell off the end of the table. Just just right on the floor, blacked out. Um, this kind of stuff just kept going. In. And I always made some kind of... Um, I don't know the alcoholic mind. I, I would make an excuse. I would I would justify it. I would I would find uh, others at fault. One of Will's biggest justifications for his drinking was resentment, resentment about his wife's accident and how their lives had changed as a result of it. I was blaming my wife on the fact that I didn't have a companion, on the fact that I was not uh, not able to do the things I, I used to do outside of the house, on the fact that I was isolated. I blame my drinking on my wife. I really haven't told you much about her condition other than she's in a wheelchair now, but her cognition's 100%, but she has what's called dysphagia, so she can't talk. Um, she's, she's learned to communicate over the years. She's learned to write left-handed. Um, she's, she's very good with facial and hand expressions, but she really can't talk. And so I'd be laying into her for like, you know, five minutes, and she, she just has to look the wrong way, and I'd be, go apeshit. And... Um, so to me, that was probably, that, that was the worst, worst of a consequence than anything, um, was the guilt and shame of how I treated my wife uh, in those last couple of years. The consequences were beginning to pile up. And then Chicago happened. Flew to Chicago. I'd bought a 68 Camaro online, uh, gave him a deposit, flew out to Chicago to go see it before I gave him the rest of the money. And... Uh, Oh, hooked up with an old workmate. We drank until the wee hours. Um, I wasn't feeling good. Got some. De went to a uh, urgent care and got some kind of pills and actually crossed the center line driving uh, my rent a car over to go look at this car. And uh, I fell asleep and uh, pulled over, took a nap, five minute cat nap. Got back on the road, crossed the center line, almost took out a a, a guy and his wife and we're out in the country in Illinois and basically I, I mean I knew I had to pull over there was screeching tires thank god I didn't hit him um I, I pulled over I knew something I knew I'd done something terribly wrong and even though I'm out in the country this was witnessed by about three other drivers and almost vigilante style I was circled and um ironically it was in a bar parking lot was where I pulled over but it's like 10 in the morning and uh, the state trooper never showed up. So they kept calling him, never showed up, kept calling him, never showed up. Um, but they weren't letting me leave. And so about an hour later, he shows up. And um, I end up with my second DUI. My first time overnight in a jail, I didn't realize they left the lights on. Silly me. And you don't get a, 
you got to sleep on cement. So anyway, it was a, probably the worst night of my life. Will bailed himself out the next morning and returned to Portland. He never even got to see the Camaro. He entered his first treatment center shortly after. I went to Newburgh, Oregon, and started actually learning, um, learning some things that I didn't know. Um, you know, started getting the hint that maybe I wasn't alone, that maybe I wasn't unique, um, that were other people out there. And I had no clue of this. I, I didn't grow up with any alcoholics. I didn't have any as friends. Um, you know, it's just, I just had no clue. To me, alcoholics were sitting on the curb with a brown paper bag. And here I was meeting, you know, doctors, uh, airline pilots, um, yeah, um, people that were 19 that, that hadn't even really experienced life yet or, or experienced way too much in a very short number of years. And, and I could relate to them. I mean, I could relate to the, to the, to the 19-year-old that was strung out from heroin. I mean, I got it. I started getting it. Um, so I did the program um, for about four weeks. weeks into his treatment, Will's wife went in for another surgery. In an effort to balance his treatment with supporting her, Will applied for temporary passes and started visiting an AA group close to the hospital. He was sober, but still uncertain of what that meant for him. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't do step work. Uh, I did go to meetings, um, and I didn't get meetings at first. Um, they were talking some foreign language and something about some guy I couldn't understand or didn't know or named God. And there was a lot of a lot of God stuff, and it didn't turn me off. But I could see um, I, I saw other people that were definitely turned off by it, and, and took note of that. And I'll get to that a little bit later. But um, there was a meeting called Last Call in Gresham, in, the, in what I call the gritty area of Gresham. Um, at 10 every night, and I'd go, I'd go about every other night because uh, it was close to the hospital. And it, it saw me through, it saw me through. Um, saw me through the holidays, saw me through Susan being in the hospital, saw me through her coming home. His stay in treatment completed, and his wife recovered from her surgery. They decided to take a trip to visit their son. What started as Will's wife having a glass of wine on the plane Fast became a big relapse for Will. I was up to fucking speed in about 16 hours. I was right back where I was. I mean, 16 hours from zero to 150. Um, I didn't cause any destruction. I wasted a lot of money. I put Susan's Susan at risk. Um, I embarrassed myself. I came home and... Um, on uh, about a week later, isolated in, in my bedroom and just drank um, up until the 18th. So now we're about 12 days in to uh, my relapse. And I uh, called Serenity Lane. That was the only smart move I did. Will checked in on the 19th. Initially, he was so sick, he couldn't even keep water down. He spent three days in the hospital unit detoxing. 
as the fog started to clear a little bit, I really only had one goal, and that was to to find out about my relapse. That was my number one goal of my month in in uh, Coburg. I was told that the relapse starts before you take your drink. I'm like, well, that's bullshit. And you know, and they kept harping on this, and I kept signing up for different classes around relapse prevention and studying it. And I said, okay, well, maybe it was back in December, you know. So maybe in December I started, you know, maybe going to less meetings or something like that. But it didn't feel right. It didn't fit. And I kept going back and I kept going back. And amazingly enough, my relapse started while I was still in my first um, rehab center in uh, in Newburgh. Um, it started with Susan's surgery. It started with me not being able to be there. It started with um, not being in the right mindset and not having the tools mainly to deal with, I mean, shit's going to go wrong. And I was just, you know, in Pollyanna's world, I was barely sober. So when stuff went wrong, um, I was going to drink. It was, it was eventual. Will's investigation led him to a deeper truth. The admission of powerlessness was his doorway to freedom. Started getting more education, started on the steps, and I'd never really done the steps. Oh, I'd done step one. My life was unmanageable. But I didn't say that I was powerless. Because powerless, you know, I don't want to be sexist or get into anything like that, but especially in a male, um, especially if you look at my story of, of providing since I was 19 years old for families and family being so important to me, to say powerless um, was, it, it was, it wasn't happening. And by, at this time, I, you know, I had prayed before. I'd prayed for, you know, oh, please give me a house loan or please let me buy this new car or, you know, I hope grandmom gets better. I mean, just, you know, for stuff or for, you know, stuff I couldn't control. And this time I prayed, I said, just, and, and there's an auditorium in Coburg um, that's used for community, fairly large auditorium used for community um, gatherings. And there's a stage, and there's about two or three stairs on each end of the stage. And I went in there one afternoon, and it was dark, and all the lights were off. And I sat back in the stage, and I prayed. And I I didn't know what to expect. And I, I certainly didn't expect a burning bush or anything like that. And it just hit me in the head that that admitting this was probably the strongest thing, not the weakest thing, that I could do. And I broke down in tears. I mean, I just, I prayed, and then I just started crying. And I mean, sobbing uncontrollably. And, and my prayer was answered immediately. This realization was a big first step for Will. There was acceptance, humility, and an opening of the heart and mind. And Will has been able to build on that. Now, the God of my understanding may be your God, may not. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's who I talk to 
Uh, when I'm alone, it's who I talk to when I need advice. Um, it's, uh, it's the great outdoors. It's a group of drunks. I don't care. Um, it's, it's just who I talk with and, and who gives me some answers. Will kept building. He got a sponsor and picked a home group. Who thought a year ago or a year plus ago that I would wake up on a Wednesday morning and say, oh, cool, I got a meeting tonight. No way. Um, and it is. It's, um, it's a great fellowship and uh, a great group of guys and girls, and uh, they care for each other. So doing the steps, going to meetings, getting a sponsor, I feel much more grounded. Um, having a, a God of my understanding, um, somebody that I, I talk to when I go to bed, somebody I talk to when I wake up. Um, the other thing I do is I do the first step every day. Uh, I do it when I was still horizontal, when I'm laying in bed, and I admit I'm powerless and that my life had become unmanageable. And I do that every day as a reminder. Um, I do do some service work. Um, believe it or not, I slingshot Beanie Babies off a stage at a speaker's meeting up in uh, Portland once a month. Finally, Will shared some of what is working for him today and some recommendations for anyone starting out. Self-reflection is, is huge to me now. Um, my relationship is not never going to be what it was, um, and, and I've... I'm starting to accept that. Uh, I'm certainly not abusive. I lose it once in a while. Um, but I know better now to when to walk away and break that pattern of um, anger and rebuttal. And, and I do this in a, in, while I'm drive, in driving, um, you know, driving situations. I do it, um, you know, in situations dealing with somebody that's difficult. Um, I've learned to breathe. Breathing to me is super important. Um, you don't have to levitate to meditate. Um, I just find that breathing for 30 seconds, just some, some nice, solid breaths, um, brings me down. It just brings my blood pressure down. You can just feel it. You can feel it come out of your head. Um, and then I think, think the thing that I would leave with is to not be too hard on yourself. Um, sometimes it's just the fact that I'm sober today that I'm thankful for. I mean, I've got so much to be thankful for, but sometimes that's all it is, and that's enough. That's enough, because I know tomorrow, I've still got tomorrow. for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Voices of Recovery. This week's episode was recorded and edited by Thaddeus Moore at Sprout City Studios. Our theme music is composed and performed by Sammy Gallo, written and narrated by me, Monique Danziger. Thank you to our guest, Will T. If you liked the episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. 
If you'd like to learn more about our alumni program or be a guest on the podcast, go to serenitylane.org forward slash alumni. See you next time.